Welcome to the official podcast for Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization. I'm Beth, a.k.a. Triumvir Clio. Hello again. Welcome back. My vacation is over. I didn't have as much time to write as I'd hoped. I mean, I still have several episodes in the queue, which is how I like to have it. That way I can get behind in writing and recording without any interruptions for you. Today, we continue Metamorphoses with Book 2. We left off Book 1 with a bit of a cliffhanger that there's this young man named Phaethon, and today we finally get his story. As a reminder, I'm working from the Humphreys translation. Phaethon climbs up to the sun's palace, where the sun immediately acknowledges the young man as his son, and this is going to get so confusing in an audio medium. Anyway, the sun reassures Phaethon that Clymene was telling the truth about his father being the sun god. And if that's not assurance enough, the sun goes on to promise Phaethon that he'll give him anything he wants. And he swears on the sticks, so there's no going back. Which is when you know that trouble is coming, even if you don't already know the story of Phaethon. Phaethon doesn't have to think twice. He immediately asks to drive his father's chariot for one day. His father begs Phaethon to pick something else, anything else. There's no way the young mortal can control the wild horses that pull the chariot. The path is dangerous. But Phaethon is decided. He wants to drive the chariot. And the sun swore on the sticks, so there's no going back now. The sun does his best to prepare Phaethon. He describes the exact route. He gives tips on how to hold the reins. And Phaethon? Of course, he ignores all of this advice because he already knows what he's doing. But as soon as he takes off, he realizes he is in over his head. And he panics. The horses are given free rein and tear around the sky, at times too close to the earth and at times too close to the sky, which is most upsetting to some of the constellations. And more importantly, most upsetting to the earth. She cries out for help before withdrawing into her deepest caverns for safety. Jupiter finally stops the runaway by smiting Phaethon with a thunderbolt. The boy falls across the sky in flames, and some naiads bury him where he lands. Clymene and all her daughters mourn and slowly are turned into trees that continue to weep, their tears turning into amber. Cygnus, one of his cousins, mourns too and is eventually turned into a swan. Meanwhile, Jupiter surveys the damages and sees this young woman, which leads us to the next story in book two. Now, this young woman is clearly one of Diana's followers, so you'd think Jupiter would know that she's off limits. But Jupiter, as we all know, only cares about himself and his desires. To seduce this particular maiden, he disguises himself as none other than Diana, and then goes back to Olympus as if nothing had happened. The poor girl, however, does know what happened, and she tries to hide herself from Diana. She tries for nine months, and, well, you can probably guess what happens then. Diana is furious that one of her followers has given birth and banishes both mother and baby, leaving them vulnerable to Juno's vengeance because, of course, Juno knows what Jupiter did, and, of course, she blames the other woman. Juno's punishment this time is to turn the girl into a bear. She prays to Jupiter, but she's a bear, so her pleas are of no use. She hides from all of the other animals, including the wolf pack led by none other than her father, Lycaon, 
Remember him? Like how um, uh, got turned into a wolf, the werewolf dude. Anyway, as for her son, Arcus, he grows into a teenager and loves hunting. When he's 15, he comes upon this bear. Jupiter stops the boy from killing his mother and transforms them both into constellations. That might sound familiar. The big bear and the little bear. Or the big dipper really is what I tend to know it as here in North America. Anyway, Juno is furious. She doesn't have that sort of place in the heavens. And she flies off with her peacocks with their tails filled with Argus's eyes. Remember Argus? Did you know that when he died and peacocks changed form, there was another bird that changed? There was. You see, ravens were once white. Here's what happened. The raven was once the whitest of birds, whiter than swans or the geese that guard the capital in Rome. That was a real thing. Pretty awesome. Anyway, do you know geese? Oh, geese are so mean. Anyway, but the raven is a talker, and it's his tongue that gets him into trouble. You see... There's this girl, of course. Her name is Coronis, and she is the most beautiful girl in Thessaly. And Apollo decides that she should be all his and his alone. Coronis has other ideas. And the raven finds out, and this is such juicy gossip that he can't keep it to himself. He tells his friend the crow. Crow tells raven to keep Coronis a secret. If raven tells Apollo, it will just make things worse. Here's why Crow knows. She remembers when Erichthonius was born. Pallas hit him in a chest and gave the chest into the care of three young women, the daughters of Kecrops. It's the usual story. Don't look in the chest. So, of course, they look in the chest, where they find baby Erichthonius and a snake. And Crow can't help herself. She goes to Pallas and tells her. And Crow is demoted. She used to have her... have. Pallas used to have Crow as her favorite, but now it's the owl. The owl as if. It's not as though Crow asked for this. Pallas picked her. You see, Crow was once a princess, and she was so beautiful that everyone wanted to marry her, and she didn't want any of them. She ran to the sea where Neptune saw her and started to chase after her too, despite her protest that she wasn't interested. Eventually, she cried out to the other gods for help and was turned into the crow you see today, thanks to none other than Minerva, also known as Pallas. So Raven should keep his mouth shut. Convoluted, isn't it? That's fun. Raven just laughs at this story within a story within a story and flies off to tell Apollo about Coronis. Apollo is furious and shoots her. With her dying breath, Coronis admits to her infidelity and also tells Apollo that she's pregnant. Apollo performs a primitive C-section and gives the baby into the care of Chiron the centaur to be raised. And he banishes the raven, telling it to keep away from all white birds forever. As for that baby, well, Chiron raises the boy in his usual awesome way. Then Chiron's daughter, Okiroi, comes along. She foresees that this baby will become a great healer, thus challenging the gods, which is probably not the best idea. But before she can say too much, she's turned into a horse, which makes sense given the fact that her father is a centaur. Chiron calls out to Apollo to spare his daughter this transformation, but Apollo has wandered off, which has allowed his cattle to wander off as well. And Mercury can't help himself. He steals the cattle. As Mercury drives the cattle to hide them in the woods, he passes an old man named Batus and swears him to secrecy. <laughs> no problem. 
Then Mercury returns in disguise and asks Bottas if he's seen any cows pass by recently. Sure, Bottas replies. They went that away. So Mercury turns Bottas to stone before flying off. And as he's flying, he happens to pass a procession in honor of Minerva and decides he's in love with one of the young women participating. Her name is Hersey. She has a sister named Aglaris, and Apollo enlists her as his wingman. But there's no getting these attentions past Minerva. She th- then enlists the goddess Envy as her wingwoman. Envy drives Aglaris mad, and that young woman eventually turns to stone, which does not ap- endear Apollo to Hersey, and Apollo gives up and goes back to Olympus. Meanwhile, Jupiter has been waiting for Mercury to get back because he's a ha- he has an errand for him. You see... There's this girl, of course. And Jupiter wants Mercury to help him carry her off, which he does, Jupiter does, by transforming himself into a bull. This might start sounding familiar. That young woman is, of course, named Europa. She climbs on the bull's back, and he runs off into the sea. And, well, what happens next is a story for book three. I feel like this entire epic is one whole string of, I told you that story so that I could tell you this story. Anyway, as we know, this epic is about transformations, so we could spend a lot of time talking about all of those. For example, why are some people turned to stone and others are turned into animals or plants or trees or... Anyway, what stands out to me isn't any of those transformations, although I suppose what stands out is still a bit of a transformation. I mean, yes, we just covered a lot of stories, like stories within stories to tell you another story about another story. It it gets so convoluted trying to keep track of what layer of storytelling you're in sometimes. But for right now, I'm going to focus on the first one in this book because of how Phaethon's choice affects the rest of the world. The earth is scorched. When the chariot of the sun flies too close to the earth, the Sahara is created. The Nile hides its source, and Mother Earth is so parched that she can barely cry out before she is silenced and hides in her deepest caverns. And given the state of the climate today, it's hard not to see the relevance. Phaethon doesn't set out to destroy the earth. That's not his goal. He wants to prove that he's really the son of the sun, and how better to do that than by doing what the sun does. And the Industrial Revolution didn't set out to destroy the earth either, but Phaethon does destroy the earth, and the Industrial Revolution has as well. And we are living with that legacy today and struggling to change direction. So if Mother Earth has retreated deep within herself, how does she heal without our help? And what might it say that Phaethon's sisters are turned into trees? Trees specifically, that piece of it. We know how important trees are to the climate. Is is that why, did the ancients also understand that? That if the Earth has been damaged, that trees can help it to heal? Is their transformation a first step in restoring the world? 
And what does it say that this restoration has fallen on the backs of his sisters when it's Phaethon's hubris that caused the problem in the first place? So what stands out in this book to you? What still holds relevance to us as humans today? Pop over to the blog and share. It's at triumvirclio.school.blog. The URL and maybe a link are in the show notes. In the next episode, we'll cover book three, chapter six of the Bibliotheca. Talk to you then. You can join the discussion of this and everything covered in this podcast by following the link in my show notes. And if you're enjoying what you've heard so far, please consider supporting the show with a monthly donation of your choosing, just like public radio. And please also consider giving a five-star review on your podcatcher of choice so that more people can discover the fun that is Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization.